Well, hello, family. Happy New Year. Jesus loves you. It is a new year, and so we are going to be starting a new sermon uh, series today. Uh, drum roll, please. No, you don't have to. Only the pastors get excited about new sermon series, I know. Uh, we're going to be taking a deep dive into the Sermon on the Mount. All right. Um, some, uh, some people believe that the contents of this sermon uh, is actually what Jesus went around preaching over and over and over and over during his earthly ministry. Uh, as Jesus says early on, this is the gospel of the kingdom. Uh, and so what Matthew did, Matthew uh, collected various sermons and teachings uh, from Jesus' life, and he, he combined them together in this one highly structured encyclopedia, uh, if you will, all right, um, for the Christian community to read. All right, they didn't have Encyclopedia Britannica back then, so this is Encyclopedia Matthias, all right? And so just think about this. Think, think about how a reputable publisher would bind and publish the complete works of Shakespeare, the complete works of Shakespeare, right here in one volume, hardback, right? Or maybe they would take like the lifetime, uh, a lifetime uh, collection of Abraham Lincoln's speeches that he ever gave and publish it and bind it together in one big uh, volume. Well, these teachings of Jesus were so radical, they were so revolutionary that this is like the unabridged authoritative volume of Christ's teachings, during his, early, uh, during his earthly ministry. And, and I believe that it is vital for Christians to recover the Sermon on the Mount in this moment of history that we're living in right now. Uh, you know, the fact is that many one-time uh, believers, uh, they're deconstructing their Christian faith. And it's not because they don't take the Scriptures seriously. They're doing that because they take the scriptures, seriously. Many are deconstructing because they cannot rectify what they hear Jesus teaching here from this mountain and what they see being passed off as authentic Christianity today. They can't rectify that. I believe deeply that what Christians need to do right now is to collectively return to the Sermon on the Mount. Get a better understanding of whom this came from and let these teachings of Christ shape our souls correctly. I don't do recreational preaching. You guys should know that. This is important. And so it's with that sense of holy fear and urgency of the times we're going to explore the greatest sermon Jesus ever preached for the next few weeks, all right? And today we're going to start at the base of the mountain. Please give your attention to the reading of God's word. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea from beyond the Jordan. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you, and we thank you that you loved us first. And Father, we come here today 
um, going through months and months, years of just uh, ugly stuff, and we need beauty. We need to see something beautiful in our life, and we know that you're beautiful, and we know that you've made us uh, to be shaped by beauty. And uh, I, I just want to pray, as I, as I heard someone um, recently say, would you today put us in the path of oncoming beauty for the next couple of months? Help us see this beautiful vision you have for us in the world. We need, we need it. We ask you to tune our ears, and we ask you to give us eyes that can see what you see. In Jesus' sacred name, amen. Amen. Well, today what I want to do is I just want to lay down the foundation like for the whole series, okay? Just kind of lay it down. Um, and so just, okay, fair warning, this might feel a little more like a Bible study today, okay? Um, it's going to be defining our terms. It's going to be like we're going to do some historical background, and uh, so if you feel yourself kind of going to sleep or whatever, sorry. But you know what? I think you guys can handle that one day, all right? You can handle that. Um, what I want you guys to do is let's start with some intentionality. I want you to lean forward. I want you guys to engage your minds and think today, okay? Whether we know it or not, there are two massive questions that drive our behaviors every single day. From the moment we wake up, to the moment we go unconscious at night. What will make me happiest? And how do I get it? That's it. Or, or to put it a little more accurately, what way of living will give me the deepest satisfaction? And how do I get there? Okay? You and I make thousands and thousands of choices just over the course of a day, and then, and, and then on that top of that, over the course of years and years and years, based on how we have decided to answer these two fundamental questions. We all, myself included, we aim our life at our own vision of what we believe the good life is. We orient our life at that. We set that as our compass. And, and this was just as true for people living in the first century Palestine as it is for us today. Jesus walks onto the stage of the world during this particular time in history to answer these two huge human questions. What way of living will give me lasting satisfaction and how do I get there? How do I experience that? And so in order to interpret what Jesus means, we have to do a little, we have to have a little bit of knowledge of the, most, of the two most influential philosophies that were being taught at the time, being propagated at the time, because they were shaping everybody's thinking at the time. And, and the first tradition was called the wisdom tradition of Judaism. The wisdom tradition. Now the wisdom tradition uh, it answered the que these questions by saying, well, I must order my everyday life around the virtues of the final state of the world that God's going to bring about. 
And so the wisdom, or t- wisdom tradition, it saw the mundane, boring, everyday uh, life of humans as actually happening within a story. It was a story about God who was going to return everything to a, a, play, a state of shalom. A state of wholeness and goodness. So for example... If the future that God is going to bring about, if in the future that God's going to bring about, there is no use for money, that's pretty practical, right? Well, then to live every day of my life as if money's the most important thing in life is foolish and will be frustrating. It is not wise and wonderful. That's just a kind of example of what I'm talking about. So it's not so much what we, what we say we think. It's what we do. It's what we daily do that either prepares us or is not preparing us for this coming future that God's going to bring about in the story. And so the satisfying life is to get really, really practiced in a way of living that's going to prepare you for the way reality is going to function every day forever. You might as well get good at it now, all right? From how we do marriage or how we do money or handle anger or lust or oath-making or praying or the poor. Make sense? And you, you guys kind of pick up on some of that. You guys are thinking about some of the stuff Jesus talked about, right, right, right now and some of the stuff the Proverbs had talked about. Bottom line for this tradition, habitually doing wisdom, not just having wisdom, you don't have wisdom, you do it. You do wisdom. So habitually doing wisdom that is shaped by the future is what brings lasting happiness. Okay? That's what it is and how you get it, according to this tradition. Now, the other tradition that was really popular was the Greco-Roman virtue tradition. Okay? Greco-Roman virtue tradition. And they answer this question like this. Well, peace and happiness doesn't come by simply being pious. You know, it doesn't come simply by doing the right things and making the wise choices uh, in everyday mundane situations of life. The Greeks taught that peace, that deep lasting satisfaction comes by knowing what kind of person you should be, a virtuous person. A full person, a, a, a whole person, right? And also knowing how to get shaped into that person. If that's the kind of person you should be, how do you get shaped into that person? You ought to know that. They would say, well, what good is behaving wisely when you can't handle the world that you're going to live in one day due to the fact that you're a misshaped person? You can't handle living in that world. You're not ready for it. So you need to find out what kind of person, what's a virtuous person, and then how do I get shaped into that person? And so the main way that you be, in this tradition, the main way you become a virtuous person is by becoming wholehearted. A wholehearted person is someone that does the right behaviors because they love the right things in their heart. They do the right things, but they do because they love the right things. 
from their heart. Aristotle was a big teacher of this tradition. And so the virtue tradition taught that if you do the right things, but your heart doesn't have the right loves, your heart doesn't really want to do the right things, you're just kind of going through the rote motions, you will not be shaped into a virtuous person. That's all just surface. You're actually going to be a split person. And a split person, or today we would say a hypocrite, they'll never be at peace. You can't be at peace when you're, not at, when you're at war inside. Right? You're never going to be at peace. It's only, they would say, it's only when you do the right things because your heart has learned to love the right things that you will become virtuous. And that is the way, that is the path to deep satisfaction and happiness. Now you can see that these two approaches to life, they have both a lot of overlap and they have some real differences. These are the two mammoth schools of philosophy that are answering the biggest questions that humans have. And Jesus steps right into the ring with them when he gives his teachings on the Sermon on the Mount. And as we're going to see in the weeks to come, Jesus brilliantly straddles both of these traditions when he opens his mouth and he gives these, tra- these teachings. Okay? And he knows it. He knows it. He's doing it on purpose. But what I think is absolutely fascinating is that Jesus does not merely combine from both of these uh, schools of philosophy, these two ways of living. He just doesn't just barely con- just combine those things. That's for amateur philosophers. That's what they would do. Just take a little bit of that and a little bit of that and, you know, not Jesus. Jesus, yes, he pulls from both traditions, but then he puts them through the filter of his own authoritative revelation. That's really unique. I mean, that's a total boss move to make as a teacher, okay? Right? Amen? Jesus is teaching us a way of being in the world that answers our deepest questions. And his teaching is at the same time familiar to us and profoundly different than anything that we've ever been taught. It's really cool. And so before we head up the mountain with Christ, this is the big idea that I I really want us to, to understand and soak up. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' vision for a way of being in the world that results in lasting human flourishing. There are two ways you make a community. This is being, we're not that far removed from the Jews and the Greeks, guys, in our society. You can say, we have a common enemy. Those people who are stealing our jobs, those people who are speaking a foreign language, those people that are destroying the church, those people that are... Are you with me? Yeah! We band together because we're afraid of them. It's a fear way of making a community. You have to, it's called the common enemy community philosophy. And the other way is you have a vision of beauty. Here's a vision of a better society, a flourishing society, guys. 
And all we're hearing right now from our leaders, whether they're political or spiritual or community, is that common enemy. But Noah's got the positive side of that. What's the positive way that I can live into? We need to hear what Jesus is saying. It's almost like he knows what we need, guys. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' vision for a way of being in the world that results in human flourishing. This is his positive plan. So I just... I just want to lay out three foundational rocks today. They're going to help us understand the sermon going forward, okay? If you, if you guys have a Sunday to take notes, this is the, the Sunday to really take some notes, all right? Because we're going to refer back to it. First rock is this. Christ's words are monumentally weighty. Christ's words are monumentally weighty, and we need to keep that in mind in the weeks to come. Right here in the text, verse 1 and 2. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. We're going to break down those three three phrases in that verse, okay? Matthew's gospel is a highly stylized and it's meticulously structured gospel. There is not one hair out of place, okay? (laughs) There is not one, like, fluff phrase or word or description in his gospel account, all right? Nothing's been put there haphazardly or just for scenery. And so it's easy for us to look at these opening verses and go, how do you preach a sermon out of three verses, right? Like, what's the point of this stuff? These, it's easy to look at this and go, okay, this is just like to keep the narrative flowing. And once we get the mountain, that's like where all the serious stuff happens. That's where all the meaningful meat happens. That's not how Matthew writes. See, by recording that Jesus ascended a mountain, Matthew is tapping into that Jewish wisdom tradition as well as Old Testament history. He's pulling from that. Revelation for God's people happened either in the wilderness or on mountains, right? That's where revelation from God happened for God's people, always, mountains. And the most obvious and the most important mountain of revelation is what? Come on, what is it? Mount Sinai. And the teacher of that revelation was the great prophet Moses who ascended up the mountain and received teaching straight from God himself, written by the finger of God himself. Okay? There's this fascinating commentary on the Gospel of Matthew that I'm going to be referencing throughout this series by a scholar named uh, Dr. Jonathan Pennington. And I just want to give credit where credit is due. Okay? Uh, His discoveries have significantly changed my understanding of the Sermon on the Mount. And this is one thing that, that he says here. He says, quote, The connection of Jesus to Moses, who also ascended a mountain, has been long recognized and easily discernible. Jesus is presented by Matthew as the new and final arbiter of God's law, thereby functioning as a new and final Moses. Close quote. Okay, so what? Here's the point. What is about to come out of the mouth of Jesus when he gets to the top of this mountain and he sits down and opens his mouth? What is about to come out of the mouth of Jesus is nothing short of revelation from God. 
Are you tracking with that? And Jesus must find a setting that fits such weighty words. He's not down sitting down by a river, relaxing. He's got, he's got to give that from a mountain. It's God speaking. Only on a mountain will he, only a mountain will visibly communicate the gravity of what he's about ready to say. You and I, listen, you and I cannot casually read the Sermon on the Mount. These words demand our time, our study, and our full attention. Okay? I want you to notice something here. It says, notice that he sat down to teach. He goes up, he sits down. Those aren't just filler words. During the time of Jesus, the scribes were the experts in the law of God, this holy scriptures. You went to the scribes, because you didn't have a copy of the Bible, you went to them to read it and tell you what it meant. They, were, they devoted their life to studying the scriptures. I went to school for that. They both authoritatively interpreted it, the law of God, for people, and they gave practical application. That's kind of what pastors do. Here's, what it, here's how you interpret it, and here's how you put it in your life, in the world that you live in. Right? So Jesus is not only standing in the place of Moses, but he's at the same time, he's sitting in the place of the scribes. You guys get this? He's giving an authoritative explanation and application of God's law or God's word in the world that people actually live. This is bananas. Like one, one more phrase here that we need to notice here, okay? It says that he opened his mouth and taught him. Now, I know what you, you probably think is I was thinking the same thing. Well, of course he opened his mouth to teach them. Like, how else is he going to give a sermon? <laughs> how else is he going to teach a lesson? <laughs> of course he opened his mouth. But again, there's not one hair out of place with Matthew. This is, this is very important to him. Matthew's not being redundant. He's emphasizing the solemnness of the teachings that are about to come out of the mouth of Christ. Listen, here's what he's saying. Jesus is the source of all the teachings of Jesus. Jesus doesn't appeal at all to another rabbi, to another priest, to another pastor, to a scribe. Not even once does he appeal. Uh, this is where I've got my teaching from. That's what everyone else would do. But he doesn't. When he gives his vision for a way of being in the world that's going to result in flourishing. He didn't quote, footnote, or paraphrase anybody. Jesus points to himself. Full stop. That's another boss move to make. <laughs> that's unbelievable. Listen, guys, no other teacher did that. No other sage or spiritual leader did that. You'd have to be nuts to do that. And yet Jesus is doing this over and over and over. The great philosopher, African philosopher and bishop of northern Africa, Augustine, he made this observation. He said, quote, I have read in Plato and Cicero Sayings that are very wise and very beautiful, but I've never read in either of them, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. 
Whatever you and I may make of the person of Jesus and his teachings about how we should live life, here is one thing, brothers and sisters, that we may not do. We may not view him as a wise sage in the vein of Plato or Cicero or Confucius. Nor may we view his words with just kind of a eh, casual indifference. He has not left that as a live option. Jesus' words are so weighty, and they, listen, they are of such consequence that we may either hear them to our own flourishing or ignore them to our own destruction. Those are our only two options. And unlike all the other philosophers of his day, Jesus is not being merely academic. He's not put on a class, he's put on a clinic. With everything that's about to come out of his mouth. And that's why he's standing on a mountain. So as we proceed up this mountain to, to listen in and to hear the words of this great sermon, we need to approach it with the appropriate level of sobriety that the weight of Christ's words deserves. And I wanna encourage each of you to adopt that posture as you come in here on Sunday and as you listen to these messages the next few weeks, okay? The second foundational rock that's gonna help us understand this is that we gotta understand that Matthew's words are distinct in meaning. We understand that Christ's words are, are really weighty, but we also understand Christ, Christ never wrote anything. Jesus never wrote anything. It's his followers that did. Matthew's words are distinct in their meaning. They mean something the way he's using them. Okay, so we've got to get a handle on that. So like I said before, you know, throughout this series, I'm going to be leaning on kind of the, the scholarship of, of this guy, Jonathan Pennington, but here's why. He's part of a group of scholars that have made some amazing recent discoveries about the Sermon on the Mount, especially on how Matthew uses language and he uses the Greek, and it's really, really fascinating. He says this, quote, understanding the sermon rides on a track of two rails, two concepts, Okay. These two rails constitute a track that runs both ways, coming from the past into the sermon and running through the sermon to just like help us have overall interpretation of it. These rails are summed up in two Greek words, makarios and teleos. Okay? I'm going somewhere with this. Hang in there with me, all right? Makarios and teleos. So part of the difficulty in knowing what to do with the message of, of Christ's sermon is because of a translation problem. Makarios is most often but unhelpfully translated in our Bibles as blessed, okay, or God's favor upon, okay? Teleos is most often but unhelpfully translated as perfect, with kind of like this sense of being morally perfect or morally sinless, right? And so like, when, like you know, when Jesus says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, we tend to think that means like sinless because, you know, Father in heaven is sinless. So we understand the meaning of words not by what the, just their dictionary definition, but we understand what a word means by how the author uses it. That's how you can interpret sarcasm, 
Because sarcasm is the opposite of what that definition means. Because how I'm using it, right? Well, that's how we understand what words mean. Here's how Matthew's using these words. Let's start with makarios, okay? To understand the, the beatitude, we have to understand this important word. Because if we translate it blessed, or God's favors on someone, then we create a problem that's not there. We create a self-inflicted wound. And, and with, especially with the rest of that verse that follows. Blessed are the blank, right? For they will. So if you interpret that first word as blessed or God's favor on someone, you're creating a problem for the second half of that verse. For example, are the ethical behaviors that Jesus commends to us, are they entrance requirements to the kingdom? If you do this, then you will be blessed? Well, if so, then it, that, that means Jesus might be teaching works righteousness. I'm pretty sure he's not teaching that. Uh, or, uh, when he uses this word, is it, are, are these an understanding of uh, initial God's graces that are going to then lead to some different and different kind unrelated blessing? You'll be blessed, but then you'll have some other kind of different blessing? And if that's the case, then it becomes real difficult to understand anything that Jesus is saying in these, especially these Beatitudes. So what's the way, way forward? The way through this dilemma is to understand Makarios or Makariisms, Beatitudes, as pronouncements, not promises. It's not making promises. If you do this, then you will get this. Or since God gave you this, you walk this way, then you'll get something different. He's making pronouncements about the way things are, not promises. Kind of like Psalms. Kind of like the Proverbs do. See that wisdom tradition? They're pronouncements on the wise way of living. They're not promises. Train up a child in the way he should go. When he gets older, he will not depart. Yeah, that's how it is generally. That's a wise way of being in the world. Is that a promise for every single child? No, sometimes they still eat with their fingers. Okay? You told them how to eat, <laughs> and they still want to eat with their fingers. But it's just a pronouncement. It's not a promise. Here, here's how, uh, again, this guy explains it. He says, quote, Makariisms are proclamations that invite the hearers into a way of being in the world that promise human flourishing. That's what that word actually means. Flourishing are. Flourishing are these people, right? He goes on to say, Makariisms appeal to the hear hearers to find fullness of life by orienting themselves toward a certain way of being. All of this, according to Matthew, is by and through the grace that alone comes from Jesus' saving world. So, for example, sounds more like this. The ones that mourn are actually flourishing people. The ones that are crying right now, they're flourishing. That's what Jesus is saying. The ones that live meekly instead of aggressively, they're flourishing people. They're living the good life, right? They're pronouncements, not promises, and we'll flush all that out next week. And so let's get a handle on this next word, teleos. Uh, the, teleos is the word that's most often translated as perfect or morally sinless in the English. And one of the main problems with translating the word that way is that that was never the meaning of the word in Second Temple Judaism when Jesus taught. 
And also, it was never the meaning of the word in the Greco-Roman virtue tradition, which were the very seedbeds for the Sermon on the Mount. That's a pretty big problem with understanding it that way. Like, we can't, it, a word can't mean what it never meant, right? You can't force a modern definition of a word that never existed back into the past and force it upon Matthew. And so here's a better definition of teleos. Singular devotion. Inside and out devotion. Or, or if you would, a wholehearted orientation of our life towards God. That's teleos. That's to be teleos. So in other words, our heart's desire and our ethical behaviors are in alignment. They're not split. That's teleos. Aretha Franklin once sang a gospel song called Holy, Holy. W-H-O-L-L-Y, Holy, H-O-L-Y, Holy, Holy. That was the song. If you go back and listen to the song, you especially remember the time period, this is the 60s when this was written and what was going on in the world with civil rights, it gives you a little context on how she's using those words. It's a play on words when you look at how it's spelled. That song is an invitation for everyone to become holy, holy, completely holy. So that love and peace will reign. That simple phrase captures the concept of this word Jesus uses, or Matthew uses, teleos, right? You want to be a person of peace? You want to be a person of love? You want to be a person of virtue? Then be holy. That's how you become holy. Become whole, and then you'll be holy. Right? A brilliant example of this is when Jesus invites us to be teleos, even as your father is teleos. It sounds to the ear very much like what God said in his law in Deuteronomy uh, 18.13, right? Be holy for even as I am holy, right? But here's what happens in Matthew. Jesus changes the word H-O-L-Y to W-H-O-L-L-Y. Did you know that? Well, that makes, that makes a difference in how you interpret it. He changes his, in his sermon from hagios to teleos. Jesus is saying the same thing that Aretha was singing about. You want to be a morally holy person, a virtuous person in the world? Then you've got to be holy and in your life at God. That's how you get there. That's what it is and how you get there. That's how you become whole and not split. And this is the kind of brilliant genius stuff that Jesus pulls up and just makes me respect him, makes me love him. And so the whole sermon hangs on to understand these two words, makarios, which means flourishing, and teleos, which means wholehearted, or de desires and behaviors aligned. And, and, and so here's the last rock we understand, all right? Those who hear Christ always respond in some way. Like you've heard the words of Christ, not just through me, but through Rush who read this. And you need to know, those who hear Christ always respond in some way, all right? So for those of you that have not completely checked out and gone to screensaver on me, all right? Just listen, this is the last thing we're going to talk about, like three minutes, okay? It's the shortest one, all right? Jesus teaches with such authority 
and in such a way that demands a response from his, it demands a response from his listeners every single time, no exceptions. That's the kind of teaching style he is. He's just really different. This phenomenon is so intense, and I've heard this when people have read the gospel accounts. This, this thing that happens when you read Jesus, this phenomenon is so real and it is so intense that people have become very creative in finding ways to wiggle out from under the witty words of Jesus or to just flat out find ways to avoid them all, all together. Well, that's not for us, that's for someone else. That's not for me, that's for someone else. I mean, some people get hung up on who Jesus' original audience was. was. Was Jesus giving this invitation to his disciples, or was he giving it just to kind of the general crowd? Well, let's go back to the text. This is why I had Rush read that verse in chapter 4 first. It's kind of important. Matthew chapter 4, verse 25, and we'll go to verse 1 and 5. And the great, so this is massive, the great crowds followed him. Where the, what, who was the makeup of this crowd? Where they all come from? Well, they came from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and from Judea and from beyond the Jordan River. Okay? Verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up a mountain. He went up the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. We'll break those three phrases down. Is Jesus talking to the crowds or is he talking to the people that are already believers? His disciples. Which one? Looks like both. The way I'm reading this, this looks like both. Looks like he's talking to everybody, right? At the end of the sermon, by the way, when Jesus, it says that Jesus descends a mountain. And when he descends a mountain, it says that the crowds descend with him and with his disciples. No, a modern division of audience goes something like this. Is Jesus teaching believers or is he teaching the non-believers how to live this flourishing life? Or another way some people put it is this. Is Jesus teaching a Jewish audience or is Jesus teaching a Gentile uh, audience? Well, Matthew tells us that the crowd is made of a people of the Decapolis, which was a Gentile confederacy. And it's made up of Jerusalem, which is mainly uh, Jews. So it looks like it's both. Looks like that's the wrong question to be asking to me. I mean, there's obviously this massive mixed crowd that's listening in onto Jesus's te- listening to Jesus teach, and yet Matthew also makes a distinction between the crowd and the disciples. So what's Matthew doing? What's Matthew trying to tell us? I think that what he's saying is that out of this large, massive crowd of people that hear the teachings of Jesus, there is this other smaller subset called disciples or followers. Throughout the course of this sermon, Jesus is not making a, he is making a distinction, but he doesn't make a distinction between ethnic Jews and ethnic Gentiles. He doesn't make a distinction between uh, born-again believers and not yet born-again people, or Christians and non-Christians. The Time and again, as you go through this sermon, the marker that he uses for who a disciple, a, a follower is of Jesus, that he uses between those that really hear him and those that hear him but don't hear him. That's the marker he uses. 
So what makes someone a true disciple of this unique man, Jesus, is someone that hears what he is saying and doesn't walk away, go back home and say, well, that was really inspiring. They don't walk away from Jesus. They follow him. They say, more please. (laughs) That's a disciple. See, a true disciple is one who hears Jesus and steps out from the nameless, faceless crowd and comes closer in order to obey Jesus forever. That's it. That's how you know if you're really hearing Jesus. You obey his weighty words as a regular habit of your life. See, when we hear the words of Jesus, we will, you will respond you will respond one way or the other. The way that he teaches forces us to decisions and to responses. And I want to give you guys this, another encouragement. Please, as we go through this series, respond to Jesus by following what he says. That's it. There's not an and at the end of that. Jesus is going to reveal these some things in in your heart that you may not want to see. You may not want to look at that ugly junk. And he's going to reveal it. And you're going to have a, a choice. You're going to respond to that. Right? Jesus is going to bring to light some weaknesses in your life. He's going to bring to light some deformed loves. And you think you love him, and he's going to show you you really don't. It's kind of mutated. And when he does that, I want to encourage you, come closer to Jesus. Come to him. Come to him. Stay on the mountain with him. Let him change what you love. Let him change who you love. Jesus is inviting us into a way of being in the world right now that will result in our flourishing. Hearing him means actually, and maybe even literally in some way, physically moving closer to his way with your very life. And I, and I hope that, that you'll do that with me. Jesus loves you. Let's pray. Jesus, um, Oh, Lord, we love you. You are so good to us, and I thank you for these words. And I thank thank you that we're gonna get to just spend some time with you the next few weeks. And I just pray that you would give us ears to hear what you're really saying, and we know that, that hearing in your definition means coming closer to you, coming further into that bright, bright, revealing light, coming closer and closer to your love and your compassion. I pray that these words would go out and find good soil and it produce fruit 30, 60, 100 fold. In Jesus' name, amen.